Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godstein's Crown. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. Uh, we are going through the gospel reading for Jubilate Sunday. Uh, for some of us, it's the third Sunday after Easter. For those of us on LSB, it's the fourth Sunday of Easter. I think they they changed that so that they could copyright that particular Sundays, those Sundays in the church year, but who knows? <laughs> Um, it's an entirely new translation of the number three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're just busting CPH's chops. Okay, so um, the gospel reading is John 16, 16 to 22, and we know from last year when we spoke about that, these are our favorite Sundays in the church year. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read that in the English Standard Version. Jesus said, A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. All right, so uh, context. Well, this is uh, the middle of the scene in the upper room that began in John 13, so the night in which Jesus is um, arrested, mm-hmm. betrayed and arrested. And it, this this section culminates with chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer. So, yeah. so this is preparation um, for Good Friday. Yeah, so farewell discourse. He's... Yeah prepping them for the little while. Um, Any translation issues? No, I don't think so. I I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Though admittedly, I didn't spend a lot of time in the Greek, but I I don't, it just seems very straightforward. A lot of repetition, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. That that word mikron, a little while, shows up seven times, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know, you know, if you want to make some mystical application of that. but Well, it does... You know, it's kind of like reading uh, those chapters in Daniel about the bowing yeah. to the golden, and they just keep repeating this over and over again. And you just feel like um, it's just you're saying a little while all the time. Well, so that's I think a, mm. a little different. The yeah. so in the in the in the Daniel thing, that is like the that's that's like the Odyssey or this ancient literature where these things are like clues to help the person who's reciting it remember it. They're like markers, you know? Mm. And so that kind of litany has to do with it being 
recited, right? Yeah. Read out loud, but not by, you know, but not by, by, by reading it. And uh, I think that's what that is. Whereas this, I don't think is intended to be memorized and read out loud in the same kind of way. Yeah. So, well, I always took the Daniel thing as a mockery of it. They say it so much oh. that you oh, just well, are, part of it, you know, yeah. Trumpets that, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> trumpets and the sackbut. And when you hear that, it's just like never ending. And you're like, gosh, can like I got your point? This is you're making also fun the, of it. <laughs> also, the levels of bureaucracy as well. Yeah, yeah the satraps yeah, yeah, and yeah. the. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a this is one complicated, um, you know, bureaucratic uh, institution. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's fair. I think you're right. That there is a kind of mockery in it as well. Yeah. Well, well so anyway, this is a little bit different. But I mean, are the is he is, is there a sense in which Jesus is mocking the disciples for asking about this little while? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. I don't, is that I, blasphemous I'm willing. To ask? I like. <laughs> I, what's that? Is that blasphemous of me to ask? <laughs> no, no, because they, he does he does engage in mockery. Right. I mean, Jesus does, but I don't think this is. This is he's being very serious. He's he's laying out this essential reality that. So this is right. Here's the problem in verse sixteen. You know, a little while, basically a couple hours. Right. You're not going to see me anymore, uh, and then. You're, you're going to a little while again until Sunday, and then you're going to see me again because I go to the Father. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the ultimate reality that they're going to have sorrow. And of course, it gets explicated. But I think he's taking this very seriously. And I think that their confusion about it, he also is pretty gentle um, I mean, he does say, are you inquiring among yourselves? So there's a little bit of a rebuke. Why didn't you just ask me directly, right? How do you think you fools are going to solve this problem, right? Blind can't lead the blind. Um, so they're asking the wrong person. But uh, but he does then, you know, explicate it in a very clear way. They're going to weep and lament while the world rejoices, but there's going to be this reversal uh, and all of this based upon sight that they're going to see him again, and he's going to see them in verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So he really does want to teach this reality so that when their joy comes back, they'll be able to understand the glory of the cross and the goodness mm-hmm. of it. Is there a, Right is, now, is there a, any significance to the change from 16 to 22 where he says, you know, you'll no longer see me and then you will see me. And then in 22, uh, you know, you won't see me, but then I will see you. Is there a significance to that change in the subject from second person plural to first person singular? Um, I think it's a completion. Okay. So I think it's both. Both. So the beatific vision is both, okay. right? That, that he sees us and that we see him, right? As mm-hmm. he is. Right, and that we are now. So, so I don't think it's a. It's. It, I wouldn't say it's a change, but it's a fullness. Yeah. Right? So the first promise is you're going to see me again. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise, and you're going to see me. But mm-hmm. but in you seeing me, you're only going to be able to see me because I see you. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Because I go to the Father. The only reason you get to see me again is because I go to the Father. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, I'd just be dead. And, you know, the atheists would be right and death would just be the end and there'd be nothing. Or worse, the pagans would be right and there'd be eternal torture. So 
you know, here, here's the truth. I'm going to the Father. So it's like, this is like, uh, you know, their sorrow um, in some, their sorrow is inappropriate on Friday. They're sorry about the wrong things. Um, I mean, not exclusively the wrong things, but mostly the wrong things. And they misunderstand what's happening. And it's like, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's like you have a piece of this Easter candy, you know, to give to this toddler and, you know, he sees it and then you're trying to open the wrapper and he starts bawling because you're not giving it to him. <laughs> right. I mean, there's just this like, right. Toddlers are the best because the flesh is so much on the surface. They have, they're not civilized at all. So they can't, they can't hide anything. Right. Yeah. So everything is right. They're, they're impatience, you know, um, because they don't have it that exact second. Um, and their misunderstanding of what you're doing when you're opening it, you know, thinking that you're somehow keeping it from them. That, that's sort of the kind of impatience and ridiculousness in a sense that the, that the disciples are engaged in. Okay. So, um, and so that, that's what he's trying to, they're not going to understand it until after the resurrection, of course, but this mm-hmm. teaching will come back to them. So is there, um, when he brings up the whole woman giving birth, is he, it, does he have in mind kind of that ancient, I, I don't remember if it's Plato or that you can only understand the good times with the sorrow that you have these two opposites going on. Mm, that's inter- that, I don't. I have, that's interesting. That uh, th- that you must have difficulty, great difficulty to understand great joy, or no? I think I think we're going to have to reject that. Okay, because that would make God the author of evil. Mm-hmm. That would mean that would mean that there is no good apart from evil. Right. Or okay. there is no. There is no. Yeah. And so I think. Um, I, I don't think that's a right. I mean, it is possible to have joy, right? Or at least it was possible to have joy apart from, right? I mean, in the garden, they had joy and they had no sorrow. Yeah. So, so is yeah. this is this Jesus's way of saying that difficulty is a prelude to joy for his Christians? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a bunch of things going on with this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so first of all, the, the whole woman example is so magnificent because, and I love the language of her hour, right? Yeah. You know, in the mouth yeah. of Jesus at his hour, right? His hour is to lay down his life for the world. Her hour is to bring life into the world through her own sorrow and difficulty. She, mm-hmm. right? The, Eve is the mother of the living. You had this in Mark's, at the end of Mark's gospel. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Mm-hmm. Which means that Jesus is the son of Eve, right? Yeah. Um, and that he is the living God, right? So th- to give birth, uh, for a woman to give birth, to bring a child into the world, I think is the most divine activity that human beings participate in. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the essence of the living God. And women have been given this honor right? And this particular privilege. And so this is her hour of suffering, but by which life comes. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an example, just a convenient example, like mine of the candy wrapper, right? Um, It's a, it's a much fuller, there's more going on there than just, yeah, there's, there's pain, but it will, it will, it will work out in the end. Um, So that's part of it. But I think there, there's, there's more to it there. I forgot what you were talking about. This is, kind of written into the fabric of creation a After constant yeah. prophecy of 
the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it brings. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. She'll be saved by childbirth, right? There, there is a, there is very much a sense in which every conception is messianic, mm-hmm. which is uh, why it, this is a miracle. Why abortion is so popular among uh, uh, pagans, uh, because they want to stamp out this prophecy. Or <laughs> currently, um, you know, the anti-marriage crowd also they 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 want to stamp out the the living prophecy of Christ and His Church. Well, yeah, I never thought of that, but I think that's right. I think so there are, deno- I mean, we always knew there were deno- de- demonic forces behind it, but particularly anti-gospel demonic forces trying to snuff out the the things written into the fabric of creation that proclaim what God has and is doing among his world, his creation. Right. And right, the devil, the devil is after death. Jesus is the giver of life, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this is why he rises. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he's not he's 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 not the author of death. He's not ushering in death. I mean, you know, the appeasement of his father's wrath, the atonement itself is uh, even though it's by death, I mean, it ushers in life and he transforms death, mm-hmm. a physical death for for the Christian. I so I am I mean, I don't want to be absolutely dogmatic about this, but I think that in John's gospel at the Passion, right, that we should not, the physical death of Jesus is not part of the punishment or the, uh, I mean, of course, in some sense, everything he does is part of the atonement mm-hmm. on the ransom that he's paying. But when he says it's finished, right, part of what's, everything's finished, but the, right, the, the punishment's finished. And then physical death is a relief, Hmm. And he's he's released from his burden. He's released from. I mean, that's the end of the humiliation in a in a way. Uh, certainly, the end of his sorrows, right? And he goes, and then that death, his peaceful death and release, and being received in his father's bosom, transforms our physical deaths, hmm. which is you know then completed uh, in the resurrection. Yeah. So there is this, but but that trans that uh, transformation of death is not is not a creation of death or a giving of death. It's, it serves life and it ushers in life. Okay. So anyway, but, but life anyway in the woman is, is a big deal. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is not just a, you know, like I said, this isn't like my stupid candy illustration. This is, this is actually a much more profound, as you said, written into the fabric of creation. Yeah. So, so, one other thing on that, since yeah. you brought up the abortion thing, I think um, you know when we talk about male and female virtues, um, it's really difficult to distinguish uh, because you know w- uh, courage, for example, physical courage and moral courage, but both of these things are required of women, and 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 can be exemplified in women, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing with so it's hard to really talk about virtues as being distinctly masculine or feminine. Uh, or even more essential to one or the other. But I, I think it does show up in a way in vices, <laughs> that there are vices or failures of virtue that are more offensive in one or the other. Mm. That, it is, that it is more offensive for a man to act in a cowardly way than it is for a woman. Mm. And, it is way more, and it is more offensive for a wo- mother to abandon her children than it is for a father. Mm-hmm. N- not that it's good, 
in any way, right? It's still a vice. If a if a woman is physic is a coward, that's a vice. Women are called on Christian women are called to be courageous, and in the same way, of course, obviously, Christian fathers are called upon to nurture and care for their children. But there is something that I think in the vice we see something of the distinction between male and female, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we have a problem in our current reality of seeing a difference between men and women outside of the pulpit, right? That's the only kind of place we can see a difference, mm-hmm. um, that, that they're not allowed to be pastors. But anything else goes, you know, they can carry guns, they can, they can, they can be uh, conscripted, right? The Missouri mm-hmm. Senate has, is, is all about the uh, Romans 13 allows the government to conscript women to die for our sons. Mm-hmm. I, I think the Missouri Senate's failed uh, completely. Yeah. Uh, to because uh, to, that's wrong, and and this is one of these places I think where we see it, right? That the woman's hour is in the giving of birth, and then and then uh, continues then mm-hmm. by the by the raising and the caring of children, and therefore that being the most essential activity of humanity in a sense to be fruitful and to multiply. Mm-hmm. That's what has to be should be protected as the most ascent. You know, that's why she doesn't go fight in wars. Yeah. Right. Ideally. I mean, of course, again, I mean, I understand. I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the story of Jael and Deborah. And I know there's times when, uh, because of the wickedness of this world, when women do have to engage in these things. But those are, I mean, <laughs> you know, that doesn't make, that's the exception that shows the rule. Not, mm-hmm. not the, oh, that guess it's fine, you know. Yeah. Well, the- Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. That's not an, a, a, that doesn't mean women's ordination is okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I've just I'm thinking about this whole virtue thing. You know, virtue comes in Latin from from the root vir, which is which means man. The ancients make a distinction between manly virtue and feminine virtue, or did they make that distinction in the household codes that came about? Hmm. And so, do we see well, this? I've- do we see this taking place? within the New Testament and the Old Testament, I'd say particularly the New Testament, when Paul gives household codes in his epistles like Ephesians, Colossians, um, Titus, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy. Well, I think, so the problem is like, I mean, Aristotle uh, does not have an appropriate or godly view of women. I mean, he, he doesn't, so you do have this problem in like the, or the Romans, you know, they mm-hmm. don't actually recognize, they don't seem to quite recognize women as full human beings or mm. children. And uh, so I don't know that they're, that we can go to them for this. Yeah. In terms of uh, Paul's codes, I mean, they, they really, it's, well, go, don't go to Paul, go to, go to Genesis 3. Mm. Um, you know, there, all of the curse I know that's the opposite again, but that's, you know, except for the pain in childbirth, those are universally applicable, mm-hmm. right? Thorns come up also for Eve, and Adam also has the desire for those who exercise authority over him. And all of, the, all of that kind of suffers really in some sense equally. I don't think that Paul's um, household admonitions have really they're they're not about distinctions amongst virtues they're about the hierarchy and the duties that we that we carry out within them according to our vocation mm-hmm. so our you know our relationships to other people but virtue sets hearing, forth duty does it not 
Does virtue set forth duty? Isn't it the other way that duty requires virtue? Mm. I don't know. I'm not a philosopher, obviously. I'm not not either. (laughs) We're probably going to get rebuked by some Hillsdale grad. Um, Yeah. But I, well, well, anyway, in the you Bible, email Peterson about it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, I mean, I'm in the Bible, I, I feel like I could talk about the Bible, maybe not Aristotle, <laughs> but the uh, the Bible, right? The the how the you know the the table of duties is or the tables of duties, you know, in the various places that they that they come about. Mm-hmm. I really, I, they really have to do with our vocation within the estates. And, and how we relate to one another and, and how we carry this out. And mm-hmm. some of that language is virtue language, you know, yeah. like love and so forth. But, but I think it really, it, it's always subsumed in this kind of order. Whereas, you, you, yeah, that, that, that's different um, because it has a higher view of humanity than any of the ancients. Yeah. I guess um, I, I've always seen virtue as a, uh, if one is virtuous, one is properly ordered. He's wise. Yeah. Well. Well. Anyway, there all there's no virtue that is distinct, mm-hmm. male or female. Yeah. I mean, all all human beings are called to all of the things that are truly virtues, including the theological virtues, of course. Sure. Sure. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so if you've got the seven my, cardinal virtues. Right. The the four whatever and the three theological. Anyway, what I really wanted to talk about today was this these types of sorrow. So I spent, speaking of philosophy, I spent a couple hours reading an Aristotle this morning, or uh, geez, Aquinas uh, this morning, practically the same thing as we all know. Yeah. But uh, so I got interested recently in, and I'm going to write a Godestine, the next Godestine journal article about envy within the ministerium. Mm. And particularly, I got driven to this by this passage in Philippians where Paul says he doesn't care why they're preaching the gospel as long as they're doing it. Yeah. And uh, some and some preach it from envy, and others from this that strife. That passage? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know what in the world is he talking about there? I, I think what he's not talking about. I don't think he's talking about heretics. He wouldn't be happy. That wouldn't be actually preaching the gospel. But he, I think, what he is doing in that. In the context, there there's a lot about this humility, and I think Paul is having to sort of let go and suffer some insults and some slights from the brothers, you know, because of their own weaknesses and ambitions and the like. And he and he, he kind of comes to recognize, well, maybe I'm being a little oversensitive, and I'm going to let this go in humility because the gospel is being preached. That's sort of the thesis. So anyway, sort of looking at this and thinking about this, you know, how can Paul endorse this? And uh, so I was reading about envy in um, in Thomas, and then uh, that led me to, he, he categorizes envy as a kind of sorrow. And so then I went, and then, so I was working on this earlier in the week, and then today's text, right, we've got this this language about sorrow and the comparison between sorrows and joy. And so, you know, it's, it's beautiful to, I mean, Thomas is brilliant. Um, yes. So the way that he breaks this stuff down, what is really a joy, what is, you know, happiness uh, in humanity. And the first thing he does is he says, well, uh, the real joy, true joy is to be seen by God and to see him, right? The beatific vision. That's what it really is to to know God as good and uh, 
and then to be conjoined to him, to recognize it. So to have it and to recognize him for what he is and to see him clearly. And there's a certain sense in which on this side of glory, we're never going to be fully and perfectly full of joy until we get to that because we're always longing for it. Mm -hmm. So he goes through that whole thing. Well, we've got this seeing language right here, you know, right? That mm -hmm. you will see me again and, and I will see you. And then he goes through what it what is joy not, and it's sort of sort of obvious in a way, but it, uh, that joy is not just pleasure because joy is actually in the joyful. So mm. it is a characteristic of the one who has joy. It's not an external thing. Um, pleasures have always on this side of glory sad ends, right? So if your pleasure is in your body, well, that's failing and it won't endure. If your pleasure is in food, whatever, uh, music, you name it. Uh, and then he and then he uh, says, okay, and he goes. It takes him a long time, but he goes through very painstakingly. It's not wealth, it's not honors, it's not fame or glory, it's not power, it's not bodily good. So what is it? It's it's the beatific vision. Well, then, so great. So that's what joy is, and that's where we're headed, and that corresponds very nicely with our text. Then you have him. He goes through, you know, again painstakingly, you know, pages and pages of of what is sorrow, what causes sorrow, and he does operate with this idea that. An evil is a lack. Mm -hmm. So evil isn't something in itself, but it's when something's missing. So poverty is a lack of wealth, right? Hunger is a lack of nourishment, whatever. So uh, what is it then to have sorrow? It's to have a lack and to know it. So mm -hmm. as to, right? So you have to, if you don't know it, if you don't have the ability to sense it, then it doesn't create sorrow. Uh, so it could be evil, but not a sorrow, right? Sorrow requires some kind of intellectual or physical awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, what is proper sorrow? Proper sorrow is to be sorrowful for your own evil. And this is the uh, beginning or the essence in some sense of repentance. So mm -hmm. this is the proper sorrow, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mm -hmm. and, and on and on, he quotes all those passages, which are easy to find. Then there's also an, another proper sorrow, and that is pity, which is to be sorrowful for evil that is suffered by someone else, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so repentance and pity are appropriate and, and have their place. But mostly, of course, we experience sorrow not so purely. And the two, really the sort of two forms of sorrow that are inappropriate are envy and anxiety. Mm. So envy is sorrow over another person's good, which yep. is seen to be a lack on our own part, right? Mm -hmm. So if your people are praising you, uh, and you know, then I f I'm envious of that. I think they should be praising me instead. Yeah. So I'm missing something that's been given to you. That's how I perceive it, and I cause then my own in my own imagination and in my own mind, I create this pain in myself, and this produces sorrow. And he calls this a capital sin, and he goes to a great length. It's interesting to me uh, how all these other sins spring from envy. It's mm -hmm. one of the sort of chief problems. And then anxiety- well, I mean, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, right. So there you go. And then so anxiety is, this is great, sorrow for the future. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So to be sorrowful about something that hasn't even happened, and of course may not happen- <laughs> And then, and then this sorrow, inappropriate, of course, because we should trust in God and believe that he's good and expect good from him. And then, uh, and this is really, I thought, interesting, this particular form of sorrow can lead 
to lethargy or sloth or mm-hmm. asadia or right it can actually affect the physical body that you don't actually get off the couch right mm-hmm. that you're just you can't even move or even speak yeah uh, so so it can the, the the i mean we would call this you know in modern terms we would call this depression. clinical depression yeah um and and he just he sees this as as a sin in and of itself that was mm-hmm. begotten by earlier sins that, you know, so, so the, anyway, I think, you know, to think about some of that, what is sorrow? And then to think about the apostles right on good Friday, they have sorrow. Um, they're not really sorry about the right things on good Friday. Mm. They're, right. They're sorry that, well, first of all, there's a kind of ignorance of the means by which God is saving them, so they don't recognize the glory of Jesus and his self-giving and the way that he's loving the world and working out their redemption, and they don't also believe his word and expect they'll see him again. They think he's going, he's dying and he's going to be dead forever. Mm-hmm. So you've got all those problems, um, you know, ignorance, impatience, selfishness, but then also, you know, from that then comes this misappropriate sorrow that they're not feeling sorrow over their sins, mm-hmm. right? They're feeling sorrow over a loss of a friend or a meal ticket or, mm. or threat anxiety because, right, like on Sunday, that's what, on Sunday night, right, they're going to lock the door for fear of the Jews. You know, that's by uh, Thomas's definition, you know, that's anxiety, fear for the future. Yeah. Or sorrow for the future. Do the apostles have envy of the chief priests and scribes and Romans or. Yeah. Like, well, we certainly know they have envy of one another. I mean, yeah. you have, uh, you know, you have John and James, you know, um, mm-hmm. and even, you know, John's, John, John's little jabs at Peter, you know, yeah. how fast how he's he can the run. first one. Yeah. Or the first one to recognize Jesus and that, you know, and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, do they have, I mean, it seems likely, I don't know that we have any evidence of them being envious, I mean, textually, I, I think it's it's certainly reasonable to un, to expect that they were envious of the mm-hmm. wicked, which is foolishness. But I don't know that we have any. So does Thomas Peter? Maybe Peter at the maybe Peter at the court mm-hmm. wanting is, wanting to be friended by the yeah. Is does Thomas relate at all the proper sorrow of pity? When it, when you are sorrowful over the evil that someone else suffers, how that turns into anxiety? Does he talk yeah, so about that his, at all? No, he he would. Well, I mean, maybe somewhere, but not in this section. He okay. he's got basically only one sentence on pity. He doesn't really explore it at all. I wish he would have because, you know, he's very interested in repentance and he's very interested in these other things. But I didn't see. Or, or I missed it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably like a, a mixed it, bag, right? The <clears throat> the apostles have some pity um, and anxiety and envy. Yeah. Um, but do, do they recognize any of the proper sorrow for their own evil? Yeah, I. so I don't <clears throat> think they really quite do on Saturday. But again, I think with hindsight, 
Yeah, right. So I do. think you know this this statement of uh, let me find the verse number here, verse twenty twenty. So, Amen. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So, I, I wonder if we should take that not just simply as a chronological description of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but of actually this is what the life of repentance and mm. absolution is. That, that he's not just talking about, look, in a little while you won't see me, I'm going to mm. die, and then a little while I'm going to rise from the dead and you're going to see me. So I'm just telling you what's going to happen, that's all there is to it. No, of course not, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there, there's, this is, like you said, like this, the, written to the fabric of creation, yeah. right? That the, the, the re- restoration of creation. And so this sentence too, right, in verse 20, is a dis, you know, they're going to weep and lament over their sins, when they when they recognize the reality of this and the world will rejoice over their sins or rejoice over their sadness or the fact that they're guilty who cares whatever the world doesn't know what it's doing right and mm-hmm. and you'll be sorrowful you'll be sorrowful for the right things but your repentance will turn mm-hmm. into joy right yeah. your, your the time is coming and those things don't exist in isolation with of one another at this point but there does come the time right when finally in verse 22, you now have sorrow, right? Mm-hmm. On Thursday night, they have sorrow. Friday, they have sorrow. Saturday, even Sunday and Monday, even even after, you know, they've received the peace in the upper room and they've eaten with Jesus and their eyes have been opened, they still have sorrow. But, uh, but Jesus sees them and their hearts are rejoicing and that joy no one will take from them because it will, it will ultimately be completed and they will see him as he means to be seen and right. Yeah. Okay. So how does this apply to us with these <laughs> verses? So do we have to change the little while to mean after his ascension to his return or? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. Okay. That we're living, we're living in the little while between Pentecost and the mm-hmm. last day. Mm-hmm. And all of our lives are a little while, right? With with God, you know, a thousand years is a day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what does that make a hundred years? One hundredth of a day. I don't know how many minutes that is. But I mean, it's not a, it's not a significant amount of time, even though, of course, it feels like it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things to say is, right, that, that our lives are short and eternity is long. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, that, that's part of what we... We definitely need to apply that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where else does the scriptures talk about a little, like a micron? Mm. Um, the mustard seed uses mm-hmm. that word, doesn't it? I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting. That would be a good. Yeah, probably uh, are other places. Little faith. I think that's also micron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. Is the uh, so the, little faith, little mustard seed? The small. When Jesus says, "Not even a uh, a jot or a tittle," Ooh, I don't think so. <clears throat> okay, I mean, I'm just doing this from memory. Um, I know one is a Yoda, um, but yeah. I can't remember. It's, you know, the could be the, the smallest could be. letter will pass oh, away. Oh, does it? Yeah. Okay, I, that just popped in my head. So if you've got if you've got a little while, the opposite is not great but long. Hmm. Yeah. Is that right? 
I'm yeah, maybe <laughs> it could be both long, right? Everlasting without end. I mean, uh-huh. forever and ever, right? I own, we don't have any of that eternal language here, but mm-hmm. certainly there are other places. I mean, even this, even this uh, language of our, right. Which I do think, you know, ties the childbirth to the cross, but, uh, but also, you know, an hour is a temporary, it's a very defined and relative in, in, in terms of a person's life, short. Yeah. Right? And passing. Passing. Right, exactly. It's limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our sorrows are limited. They are not without end, but the joy is without end. We have a foretaste of it now. Uh, you know, Jesus lives and our sins are forgiven. And, and we do know something of this beatific vision. We do know the presence of God in word and sacrament and his absolution and his word, right? I mean, uh, at the same time, we still have these sorrows. So, but one will end and the other won't. Mm -hmm. We're not going to repent in heaven. Right. That'll be weird to not have any sorrows over your sin, right? Um, We'll have an awareness. Will there be any sorrow at all? Will there be sorrow over someone else? Will there be pity? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to. So this is, I don't think, see how we could have pity for those in hell. Um, that's, you know, that's, of course, what a lot of our people are worried about because of their loved ones. And they're like, I just can't be happy if so-and-so is not in heaven. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's just a foolish statement that just demonstrates that we don't know in what happiness really is. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't really trust in God's goodness and mercy to actually deliver and, you know, we kind of try to, you know, the sort of professionals among us <clears throat> try to get around this with this kind of, uh, you know, well, whatever you need will be there. I mean, that's not false, but I, I don't know. I find that kind of condescending. Yeah. Not that I've never said it. But, you know, well, it's amazing. It's amazing how hard the death of people's pets is on them. You know, so I, I have dealt over the years with so many, they're, they're embarrassed about it. You know they're pious people, they but they they just can't believe this dog dies, and they just can't believe how crushed they are. And so some of them will come and see me, and they're like, "I'm ashamed of myself. I know this seems like this isn't the appropriate response, but I just feel awful." Now the good news is, as bad as they might feel, it is very fleeting. I mean, it is not like the death. It is not at all in the end like the death of a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and and pets are very easily replaced. I mean, they get mm-hmm. another pet, and they're really maybe they don't like this new pet as much, but it, the the sadness leaves, right? Yeah. It really does, or almost leaves. So, but but anyway, um, you know, that's one of these things that they're like. Then they want to know, you know, is this dog going to be in heaven? These are adults, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't I don't tell them if they need the dog to be in heaven to be happy. He will be there. Yeah, maybe I'm just a jerk, but. I, I just think that that's 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 a de- kind of deceptive answer. Mm-hmm. It's not respectful. Yeah. Because so the real answer, of course, is look. There we fully expect there will be dogs in heaven, because we expect a new creation, right? A new heavens and a new earth. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, we don't know exactly what that means, and I don't. I can't say dogmatically that your exact dog with his exact personality won't be in heaven, but dogs don't have souls. And so I I think the most kind, we don't really expect your dog to be in heaven, Mm -hmm. but we do expect you to, you know, be fully satisfied and happy 
and content in heaven and to be filled with joy. And yeah. you know, you're wor- right now you're worried about your dog. You should really be worried about your children, <laughs> but yeah. them, but they also, right. They're, they're, you're, you will be at this place of when you are there perfectly in communion with God and seeing this, you're going to be satisfied and you're not, I don't think you're going to have pity. So there you go. That was a long answer. I don't think any pity in heaven. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that, so the problem is then that we kind of like what St. Paul talks about in Romans one and two is that we um, we're thankful for the created things, not for the creator. And so, so what happens is we, we lose these things and we're sorrow, sorrow, we have sorrow over them and we mistake the fixes having that created thing back instead of having the th- the creator of the thing in full reality that's right right so we're the problem is is we're mistaking pleasure for joy yeah so okay. we're we're so right joy is in yourself pleasure is mm-hmm. outside of you in a sense so okay. right the dog brings pleasure my wife brings pleasure i mean all these things external to me can bring mm-hmm. pleasure that I think I could never live without, or I don't want to. And I, and of course I don't want to live without them, but at the same time, right. I think that's exactly right. Okay. It's, it's so what do you preach on here? Do you, do you preach on how we live in this little while and don't have anxiety <laughs> or are you going to, yeah, are you going to try to talk about what the sorrows are and I, I and well, what's we'll the real it, joy is? I think yeah, I think I'm 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 excited about this sorrow stuff. I think it's interesting. And mm-hmm, I think it's it helpful to kind of analyze it and and to think about it a little more deeply because so uh Aquinas or again makes a distinction between sorrow and pain that's mm. also I think useful. So yeah. so you know the, just this whole thing to sort of think about what what really are we dealing with and what is the difference between sorrow and joy and how do we how do we sort of recognize what a sorrow is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, what's the antidote to it or what's the, what's Jesus promising us here? So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to try his to summa? explore that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. I guess I should have said that. Yeah. The only thing I know from him is his summa really, I mean, a few sermons, but mm-hmm. it was in volume two, part two. It's a, you know, it's a hard thing. How does that go? For It's, <laughs> so part of it's in the first part of the second part and the other parts in the second part of the second part. Which okay. in the, this is volume two in my copy, and where's the other one around here somewhere? Still on my desk. Here it is, and volume three. Okay. So, and I mean they have a nice index, you know, you can or a table of contents actually, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you look up, if you read the if you read the first part on happiness, that's I'm translating that as joy, and then you you know the cause of it's all there. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> I doubt too many people will go and read it, but it'd be good. You should. Yeah. I only take you out. There you go. Okay. So I'm kind of, uh, so even though you were mocking me for my dislike of this Sunday, which is true, I do, I do have trouble. Well, I don't mind the first one. It's the, it's the series of them that gets, gets a little tough, but I think maybe this year I'm, I feel like I'm coming into it. It's a little more energy because mm-hmm. of, because of this. So do you think that with this kind of, focus on this particular first Sunday, will that help to put into context the rest of them? I mean, well, I, that, I, I haven't got that far. <laughs> I'm only, <laughs> well, well you, you have preached on it for the past, what, 25 years? But, I know uh, more than, but yeah, but uh, we'll see. Well, I was going to say another thing about, uh, that I forgot to say was 
because this is Jubilate Sunday, yeah. which, you know, is make a joyful noise. So that, that sort of contrast too. Uh, well, I can't remember what, I can't remember how it goes. Uh, the John 16, 15 and 16. What's what I can't remember what Sunday comes after Jubilate. Rogate? It is, I think. Yes. Rogate. So that's ask, you know, so anything you ask that that's before this. The, mm-hmm. I mean, contextually, I think that's the passages before this. And then it after is. that. Yeah. And then after so it I jumps to the stuff after this. So is there, a, <laughs> so is there a sense in which like, so this is the central thing. We actually have joy. Oh yeah. And so, um, I think so, you're right. So we have at, so, so we don't have sorrow, although it yeah. seems like we do, we, we actually have joy. And so we can be confident and bold to ask. And then yeah. I can't remember the last thing. I can't either, but I think you're right. I like well, that, that. That's, this the, is, so that's, that's the, the one where the Holy Spirit first. is coming oh. to convict the world of sin. Right. Yeah. So, so the reason that this is out of order from the chronology of the, of the discourse is because this is the defining thing from which the other things flow. Okay. I like it. I will have to see if it, if it, uh, if it shakes out, out, but, uh, I think it, I think you're probably onto something. I, I I probably said last year, I think that this, this section in John is parallel or plays the same role in John that the sermon on the Mount plays in Matthew. Oh, okay. So I think this is a huge, you know, that's why it's difficult. Um, and I mean, the Sermon on the Mount's difficult, I think, as well. Yeah. And I think that the church, you know, recognizes its centrality to John's gospel, and that's why it gets so much emphasis. Um, I'm, I'm not claiming that means that I understand it, or I'm, you know, it's. Di- I think it's. But that's, so, are there parallels then that you could that you would draw between this discourse? I, I don't know if that's exactly parallels in in the themes or I mm-hmm. some, obviously, I mean, you know, that reversal of fortunes yeah. you know, the same here seems to match the Beatitudes. So, I mean, we can find some parallels, but I don't know if there's, if, if we need to draw a, a parallel in themes, I meant more in functionality, yeah, right? Okay. The central sermon in Matthew, right? The, the main teaching of Jesus in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount it has this prominent position. And I think, you know, this plays a similar role. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's why it gets so much attention in the lectionary. It's it, it's it's recognized as being important, right? Mm-hmm. Central. <laughs> yes. I mean, all of the Bible is, but you know, we don't get it all in the lectionary. So decisions are made, mm-hmm. and you know, until somebody, until of course we get somebody way smarter, you know, who can make up his own mm-hmm. ideas about how this should be done. Yeah, maybe like put it in a three-year series. <laughs> So you can get more Bible. Instead of trying to figure out what your father meant, reject everything he did and make up your own system. Yeah, that's a good idea. a wise man. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like... (laughs) That's right. How about try to figure this out? That's my my suggestion. And suffer it with me. Um, Maybe by the end of my ministry, which of course, that's a ridiculous phrase. The end of my ministry could be any minute. Yeah. But... If the Lord, if the Lord keeps me here, maybe, maybe in another, maybe in another thirty years, I'll figure this out. Yeah, that would be something. Preaching for sixty years. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's I, I could do it. I mean, well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, it's possible. Yeah, I could live that long. I only have to live to, I only have to live to eighty six to mm-hmm. do that. So there you go. Yeah, people have done this. This isn't that unusual. 
No, I know. I'm just, it's just, you, when you think about your entire lifetime. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how long you end up pre- preaching. And yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, a lot of it's going to be forgotten by the whole world. Yeah, of course. But, the, but, you know, what I find always, uh, maybe this reveals something about me. I don't know. But I always love to hear the stories that my people who grew up in the congregation tell about past pastors, good, bad, you know, all this stuff, like they remember them yeah, for their foibles, for the great things that they did for all of those things. I'm like, I mean, that left a mark and that's pretty cool. But they don't remember the sermons. They don't remember the sermons. I've never thought of that before, but they don't, they, they remember that you know the other thing that I always think is funny the 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 most defining thing is always what what pastoral act would you mm-hmm. say it's funerals yeah they always say he they, they 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 the first thing they say almost always is he buried my mother mm-hmm. not he married us he baptized my kids yeah. I mean that might come up but the but almost always he buried my mother mm-hmm. you know I remember when those are that is but. I mean, they don't know what he said at any of those occasions. Mm-hmm. They might say he was a great preacher, but if you ask them to say something he said, they can't, they can't yeah. do it. That's funny. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> but they do remember. People. They do remember things that you've said a lot. So they'll sometimes say, "I remember, you know, in catechism, pastor always pounding this." So they do remember yeah, some of that stuff. They do. Well, I mean, I think they're remember. I mean, you don't remember everything your dad said, but you remember, you have a sense of what he said. You, you, you yeah. believe what he said, and it's just you've incorporated it. I think, so preaching is such a mystical activity. Um, I think that's one of our problems. We don't actually revere it enough. And it is ephemeral, right? It is passing. It's transitory. It doesn't endure. It's for the moment, mostly. Mm-hmm. But but it is it it's an institution. It you know Christ institutes this right, teaching them all that I have taught, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know this is it. It really is an, an amazing thing that we stand up week after mm-hmm. week after week and talk for fifteen to twenty minutes, and they just sit there and listen. Yeah, I mean it just doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Do you think that? the advent of like recording devices and the internet has changed the way that pastors go about thinking about preaching. Do you think that instead of trying to preach to the people right in front of them, they're trying to preach for kind of a lasting abstract audience? Oh, well, I don't, I mean, I, I, I'm positive that we've been changed the way our brains work have been changed by the media Mm -hmm. that we consume. Um, so I'm sure we've been affected by this, but I don't know what the exact consequence or is it, is it that we're, you mean that like, we're sort of aware that this is, this is being recorded and somebody might be listening in Australia or something like that. Yeah. And so, so we um, are preaching to a possible person who might hear it instead of the actual people. Mm-hmm. Who are, and so we make it more abstract, less concrete, less mm. to the, to the people who actually are, are right there to give them either admonitions or directions from the scriptures. We tend to make it more of a, uh, I mean, 
a, a gospel reductionist, maybe that's not the right word, but we try to make it more palatable for a, an abstract audience instead of really addressing what's what's on the mind of the people right then and there. Hmm. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to. I don't think I. I have. I don't. I'm not aware of either in the writing or in the preaching of sermons. I'm not consciously aware. I know, but of, you're from an earlier generation about this. Oh, well, that could be. I was more thinking, and you might be right. And I mean, maybe I'm. I mean, I said I'm not consciously aware, but maybe I. I mean, I. It seems to me like just the whole thing. I wonder if just intercourse itself has just been cheapened. Because mm-hmm. I, I would say it's not so much that we're trying to preach to somebody that's not there. It's just that words are so cheap <laughs> and information is so cheap and memory is so denigrated because mm-hmm. we can just look it up that, that all of those sorts of, and our attention spans and, you know, our love of images. And I don't know. I, I mean, it, it seems like if we were trying to preach to the abstract and to the person who's not really there, maybe we'd do a better job. You know, I, I always, I've quoted this a million times, you know, this, this thing about Nagel going, you know, Norman Nagel, the, the, the sainted professor from St. Louis that was held in such esteem by his students. He, um, he went to the story as he went to one of his former students churches one Sunday and the guy was terrified because he, you know, just honored Nagel so much. And then afterwards he says this to Nagel, oh, I was so scared because you were here. Ha ha ha. And Nagel says, Well, God is here every Sunday. Aren't you afraid of him? <laughs> just typical <laughs> Nagel. Uh, we could see why he was so loved. So I mean, you know, there is a I would think if we thought Nagel was listening, you know, maybe we'd do better. We'd try harder. Mm. But so maybe that would be a positive thing in some ways. It feel, I'm thinking it's just communication is just cheap. How many mm. podcasts are there? Billions. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it's affected us. It's a it's a great question. I don't know how we would discern. It'd be difficult from within the inside to tell. We almost need somebody to come come back from the future, a hundred yeah. years from now, and tell us what we did wrong. Yeah. How we were. Yeah. But we should try to think about it. I'll, I will think about it. I don't, I don't know that we'll, I'll come up with anything, but it's mm-hmm. an interest. It's an important idea, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. Thank you. All right. Very good. That was fun. We'll pick up next week with uh, Easter 5 or 4, whichever you guys call it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Take Jason. Care.